Hello, Blenders, and welcome, welcome to a bonus episode of the Real Blend Podcast. Uh, a podcast whose hosts are dropping like flies, I think. Uh, <laughs> if you, I am uh, your producer, uh, Gabe Kovach, usually here in the background, but I'm filling in uh, for Sean, who has fallen ill. But I am joined, and only joined, by Jake Hamilton of Fox 32 in Chicago. How's it going, buddy? I feel like this would have been perfect for Hunger Games release, and we could have just said, hey, you know what? There can... There can be only one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we, we fought for this one. Yeah, we, we're yeah. the champions. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'll say, so this is probably going to, we're probably going to get a lot of new viewers on this, I assume. If you're new here um, and you want to head right to the interview, you can check out our description for, for, the, uh, for some timestamps or if you're on YouTube, look at that little, um, little bar on, under the video and it'll, it'll have little chapters for you. You can head right to that interview. No harm, no foul, but I hope you come back and enjoy. Uh, but this is not our typical format, not our typical show, and I'll jump into that. For the folks who are here on the regular, yes, as I said, um, Sean is sick, and he really tried tried really hard to to do this. He thought he was going to do it, even though he was out sick. But today we're, we're recording on Monday, um, and I do not blame him for not being able to do it. And I'm sure you at home, don't I do. I see. absolutely, I absolutely <laughs> blame him. I'm sure the folks at home don't want to don't want to see or hear a, a sick man through through a microphone. But send him love on social. Um, and it's a, it's a real bummer too. Just be, just be by nature of hello, hi. So I've got a we do have another co host on the yeah, show yeah. this morning. Um, I, I do Kevin. feel yeah, exactly right. I do feel bad um, that Sean and Kevin can't participate in, mm-hmm. in these episodes in particular because these these episodes where we have the sort of big interviews that we have this week really to a certain degree not to pat ourselves on the back but kind of feel a little bit like victory laps. Uh, mm-hmm. You you kind of want to sort of say like all right, it happened. We're proud of our work. Here it is. And to not be there. Uh, it's very similar to whenever I'm at my station uh, here in Chicago and have a piece that I'm really proud of and for some reason or another can't be there to air yeah, it. Yeah. It sucks. Like, it's not to say that, like, it's not going to make air and people aren't going to see it, but like, you want to be there. You kind of want to enjoy the moment of like seeing other people see the stuff. So, right. Yeah. As I said, we're recording on Monday. So, and this is releasing on Wednesday. So, hopefully, by the time you folks are hearing this, he feels uh, much better and is, is back to it, but still send him some love on social. Um, Kevin, it is the, the holiday season. I don't even know exactly what he's doing, but it's travel season for everybody and he's traveling. Um, so it's a short week for us and we have tight windows to get these in, um, is which is why he can't be here. So hopefully he's feeling fine. Last I checked with him, he was feeling fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's Um, all good. He's all good. I think he's just probably literally in the air right now. That is not to say that this week is not going to be awesome for the listeners at home because we have not one, but two amazing interviews out of the Napoleon junket today, as you've seen in the thumbnail, as you've seen in the headline, uh, today we are joined by Ridley Scott, director of Napoleon. Somehow f- not Academy Award winner. Soon to be, maybe. Who knows? Uh, but following him up on Friday, on Friday we're going to have, you'll Jake and I will join you again uh, to introduce you to our interview with Joaquin Phoenix. Return guest, Joaquin Phoenix, Napoleon himself, um, is joining Real Blend, and we couldn't be more excited. It's, so, it was a, it's a crazy one-two punch. Yeah, it's pretty wild. These guys. Um, you know, the, the I... Never in a million years thought that we would ever have a podcast that Joaquin Phoenix would ever come on, much less come on twice. Yeah. The fact that the fact that somehow both Joaquin Phoenix and Tom Hanks and Ridley Scott and Chris Nolan are right. all uh, return guests on our on our not just one time guests but return guests is, is pretty nuts for this one in particular. To give you know, we'll dive into some of the behind the scenes. And again, if uh, if you're not a regular listener. We like to dive into behind the scenes. Hopefully you like hearing about how junkets are done, how questions were formulated, um, and what we think of movies. But um, this is one in particular, to your point, 
that was surprising because going into it, we we accepted it. We accepted it. We, we were like, hell yes. Sure. Uh, when they asked if we would take uh, Ridley Scott again. And at the time, it was just Ridley because there was a strike going on. And so we were like, you know, oh, wouldn't that be cool? But like not at all expecting one for the strike to be over necessarily. And two, that Walking Phoenix would be doing any time. And if he was three, he would come to our podcast. That was like too many layers of if it happens. And uh, what was wild is like as soon as it ended and the resume to work happened with the actors and SAG after it felt like it was within a day they updated that junket and they were like, Joaquin's available. Do you want him for the podcast? And we were like, uh, <laughs> yes, yes. And we all <laughs> joke that Joaquin, who we love and is has always been very kind to us and is always welcome on the show, yeah. but also famously doesn't necessarily love doing interviews. Mm-hmm. Uh, we all joked that behind the scenes. Joaquin was the one person in Hollywood that when they announced the writer strike was over, was like, son of a bitch. Now, <laughs> yeah. right before I got to go do press. Are you kidding me? Yeah, I think I said uh, he was looking for like any student film he could do <laughs> to be busy. <laughs> he was sorry, like, sorry, I'm, work- work- I'm sorry. working. Can't do it. Working. Can't do it. Anyway, yeah. uh, I'll g- quickly go through the rigmarole. Uh, we are, of course, available wherever you get podcasts, including YouTube. Um, and so if you're listening to us and you want to see the video of Sir Ridley Scott, his handsome face um, and his and the wonderful sense of humor that he brings to this show. You can head over to youtube.com slash real blend podcast. Um, and if you want to get the show ad free in audio form and you want to hear from Sean every other week in his little newsletter, uh, you can sign up for our premium feed, uh, which is of course available in the description. Um, you can follow the instructions there and join us. Jake, we've set up the interview a little bit before we go. If there's anything else you want to add to set the scene for the folks before we get to Ridley Scott here on the Roland podcast, uh, how was that moment going into that before it started? And we'll pick up with you um, after the interview uh, to, to debrief a little bit, but also to give you a review of Napoleon. So everyone stay tuned. But but Jake, how was it in the room? So it's I think it's safe to say that uh, this real blend interview with Ridley Scott is probably going to be uh, one of the very few interviews you will be able to find with Ridley Scott uh, for Napoleon. Um, He didn't have a lot of people approved for his list for this junket. It was a very small junket. And honestly, just by nature of how junkets work, Throughout the day, the list got even smaller. Sometimes it just it just happens. The time becomes more and more limited. Um, we were already appreciative to be there, even more so by the time uh, the junket ended, when we saw really how few people he actually sat down with. And here's the thing about Ridley Scott: you go in and you know we we have never had any kind of an issue with Ridley Scott. He has always been great on our show. Uh, is welcome back anytime. Uh, but at the end of the day, he also, if you are familiar with his style of interviews. You know he doesn't suffer fools. Um, he is not going to put up with anything he deems to be a stupid question. Uh, so we did all of our traditional real blend, you know, training to gear up for it. We had, uh, you know, dinner the night before after the screening, and we were all wiped and we were exhausted. We'd all just landed uh, from our respective cities into Paris. Uh, but we knew that we could not go in that day without sort of being prepped and having a flow and feeling confident in the way that we were going to go with things. Um, so, but walked in and instantly just the vibe was good. I think we were his uh, real, his like first sit down on camera of the day. And uh, honestly, I am incredibly happy with how this turned out. Here's one thing I am going to point out that I would love for you to notice that I okay. think it would be better on this side. Um, Sean, has inherited the <laughs> title of Ridley Scott doesn't answer my questions. 
Maybe it he just to. has a limit. Maybe he can only be interviewed by two people. <laughs> by and then, two people and, and one guy. And one guy. And we told uh, uh, Kevin that for Gladiator 2, it's going to be his turn. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah. That, so if you're unfamiliar, really quick, last time we had him on for House of Gucci, it didn't matter what I asked. He did not answer it at all. Gave mm-hmm. great answers to questions I did not ask. Um, and so we yeah, always yeah, laughed. Like he's it, just was, not, it was great quotes. It was great sound bites. It just had nothing to do with, with what I asked. Um, and so this time, uh, Sean is the one who, whose questions he does not answer. Uh, so hopefully you enjoy that. Well, that is a beautiful intro. I will, I will not uh, waste any more time and go ahead and throw you to the return of Sir Ridley Scott on the Real Blend podcast. This episode of Real Blend is brought to you by Marvel Strike Force. Marvel Strike Force is a mobile squad RPG that allows you to battle with your favorite team of superheroes and supervillains in a fight to save the universe against threats like Doctor Doom and Apocalypse. Power up your favorite characters and build a team to complete missions, unlock gear and other resources, and even challenge other players in PvP modes such as Alliance War and Arena. New ways to battle with your roster are released regularly and the meta is constantly evolving. And now you can sign on for Marvel Strike Force's new Deadpool Anniversary event in order to receive a generous gift containing character shards, an anniversary diamond orb, gear, and other great items. Better yet, each week during the Deadpool anniversary, players can complete events and receive even more special rewards and skins. If you want to get in on all the fun of Marvel Strike Force, be sure to use our promo code MAXPOOL, that's M-A-X-P-O-O-L, and thank you to Marvel Strike Force for supporting the show. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Uh, personally, I was uh, uh, an extra on the set of Roland Emmerich's The Patriot. Shot down in South wow. Carolina. Mel Gibson. Uh, Mel Gibson. I was a red coat. Uh, I went through weeks of training to learn how to load a musket, yeah. uh, fire it off, you know, march and everything. So when I watch Napoleon and I see the amount of stuff going on in your backgrounds, I think of those extras. <laughs> I want to know how the battle sequences have evolved from your earliest days. Like, is it any easier or do you still have to go through all of those steps to make it look realistic? Uh, no, you know... I had the best film school ever. I did years as a major uh, advertising director. Mm-hmm. And in those times, I think I caught the wave of, you know, today the equivalent would be the internet. Uh, we were at the beginning of commercial television. Commercial television had to have advertising. And I caught that wave with Alan Parker and Adrian Lyne. Then later, my brother, who became major at it as well. There were other directors, but we kind of led the way. And I think the advertising evolution, then it developed, it was almost like an art form. And I think we influenced France and America with what we were doing because it adjusted and changed the way films were lit, cut, and storytelling. I can tell a story in 30 seconds, and you get a feature guy going back to advertising, you can't cope with, how do you do it in 30 seconds? You can tell a story in 30 seconds. In fact, the Steve Jobs commercial I did for Steve uh, was a minute. It was Orwellian. 
he, we ran it. He cleared his stock in two weeks. Boom. Love that commercial, by the way. Yeah. 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 And uh, so one of the things I find interesting, and I remember Matt Damon talking about you running like eight cameras on The Martian. And sure. I find this so interesting. I know you've discussed the 11 cameras aspect in one of the featurettes, but I yeah. wanted to, our, our podcast is designed to teach the audience about filmmaking and yeah. the way it goes down. And when you have 11 cameras rolling in an action sequence and camera operators dressed in uniforms, can you just walk us through how that looks, how you erase the cameras and like what that does for the actors? Like, if you're a filmmaker, don't try it. If you, you've got to have the scene in your head as a geometric structure. So I know if I'm going to, he's going to walk in here, so I'm going to have camera here, camera, going to sit down, exit. You need to have that in your head. So then you can walk in position the cameras where you're going to do it. Today it became a lot easier because I can remove a camera digitally. I can pan across the camera with a, a, a camera right there into the room and we can remove him. Because um, that camera there will be maybe doing several other angles during the take. So I do everything with four cameras. So let's say a scene scheduled for a day, I'll be finished by 11, done. And if a big balance of the eight cameras, it's fundamentally kind of eight times faster. So we did Napoleon 61 days. Oh, my gosh. Unbelievable. That's incredible. As opposed to 100. I know people who do 150. That would be 61 days. And there's a four-hour cut of this in yes. 61 but, days. And, uh, but then Gladiator I'm doing right now in 52 days. Oh, my gosh. But it's, faster. It's, it's knowing where to put your camera. And... That, that also has to go hand in hand with a very good cameraman who can cope with those eight angles. But, you know, one thing that's very simple about this, the key light is from one direction. And wherever you are, sometimes you'll have a front light, sometimes side, sometimes back light. So you just, you, you accept that. And you can always massage a shot into looking good. But the person that you put the uh, the camera operator in a uniform? Yes, yes. I, I said, remove your mat box. Do you need a mat box, dude? And he said, no. So take the fucking mat box. <laughs> That's interesting that you refer to it as geometry because no, at one but, point in the film, Napoleon well, no, calls it geometry. Advertising for me was a training ground, all kinds of things. It made me a very skilled filmmaker. But I was, I discovered very early on in advertising that to be an operator is so much faster and is you get the shot you want as opposed to giving to somebody else and it didn't quite what you want. So I started operating almost everything I did. And so the very first film, I was the only one camera on the alien, me, one camera on Duelist. I wasn't allowed to get on camera in Hollywood because they wouldn't let me because I did Blade Runner. Returning, only one camera on Legend, that's me. Thelma Louise is me. So I know exactly how to use this thing. So when I suddenly decided, you know, I can use two, four, eight, and I know where to squeeze them in because I'm an operator. So is it not 11 on this? Is that right? Yes. Okay, it is 11. Okay, cool. I just want to make sure. Okay. Uh, Napoleon crossing Russia, not accounting for the weather, I feel like it's sort of just this pitch-perfect example of a guy who maybe doesn't know when to quit, when to call it, when to to pull it back. And I'm sort of curious, do you have a cinematic equivalent of that? We've seen for decades the examples of, of moments where you've, done it pitch perfectly in your success stories, but do you have a moment on set where you went, I should have quit, I should have pulled back, I, I, I went too far? No, you, you, uh, early on I used to get bad moments where, as take when I was moving into multi-camera, because you got a lot of people going, mm, and the first idea going, mm, the cameraman going, impossible, and I go, no, you have to say, 
fuck this, this is what we're going to do. Sorry, beep, beep, this is what we're going to do. Um, we had uh, Mr. Nolan, Christopher Nolan, on our show earlier this year. He's one camera. He's one camera, yes. God bless him. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, and he'd mentioned that the, the moment that he realized that score could be used as a, a character, almost as a main character, sure. was having listened to your commentary track for Thumb and Louise. Yeah. It almost opened him up to that. Um, the music in this film is not what I was expected. It's jaunty, you know, it has it has a, an energy to it, a vibe to it. Can you just discuss what you were hoping to accomplish with the score and how it came about? I always write score around this, if, and if you've got a central character, you, you normally do. In this sense, I've got, and I hope any Corsican forgives me, but I've got a Corsican ruffian who is kind of not upper class, is not even middle class. You can't quite call him working class because um, mummy keeps her standards up and he has to, or, you know, his mom, mother dominated. Um, uh, and, and I thought that actually he's a bit of a tough guy. I was going to say thug. Not a thug, he's small. He's very can-do, and he's got a very strong... I think he must have been gifted with a marvellous intuition. Had to. When you do those battle programmes, that's an intuition. You're taking risks and chances. You're going, screw it, I'm going to do it. That's intuition. And the more... I think that was his strongest asset. Um, the weakest side of him was his grace. He had no social graces which I think is what became, made him fascinated with Josephine. Because Josephine, being politely we call a courtesan, knew all about the social graces of how to behave, how to address, to deal with people and manipulate people. He had none of that. He was very much in your face. And I think that was part of their, his need for her. I don't, I don't mean he actually said, and we're going to be with her because of that, because I think he was deeply attracted to her as well. But I think there was more than just sex in the bedroom. Gotcha. I'm going to jump off his question, because when we had uh, Christopher Nolan on the show for Oppenheimer back in, in yeah. the summertime, he talked so highly of you, because you asked the question about, like, who was Christopher Nolan's Einstein equivalent, someone that meant a lot to him, and he said... Sir Ridley Scott. Good heavens. And well, that's, that's what I wanted. So this was on our show. So I wanted to get your reaction when, when a when a filmmaker. He's a younger filmmaker, but he's obviously made up his state his yeah. claim in filmmaking. But when you hear about a filmmaker like that, that that looks up to you like that, what does that mean to you? And also, like you know, the success of that filmmaking, almost a billion dollars. Did you even see it? I was just curious, like what that means to you. Brings tears to my eyes. Really? Really? No. <laughs> But th thank you, Chris. <laughs> Perfect. Thank yeah. you. Uh, speaking of brings tears to my eyes, I I'm going to be genuine and tell you that some of my uh, most emotional moments in a movie theater have been because of your films. Uh, I, you know, just uh, the, the death of Maximus. I've seen the movie a million times. Mm -hmm. I watched it literally on YouTube again this morning, and it still hits me. Don't tell him that. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, I, well, not for the first time. It's not for the fucking first time. I've seen it a million times. Not for the first time. Oh, God. Uh, but I am sort of curious how your own films impact you. If you were to watch your filmography from start to finish, what is the beat in one of your movies that, even though you directed it, it still hits you like an audience member? Uh, you know what's great? They don't age. Mm -hmm. They don't age. And, and so... And it's frequently because we're getting short of what I call good material on the platforms. 
I, I do this terrible thing of starting to look at my own movies. <laughs> and, um, and so, and eventually you become the checklist, and God, that flew. And I looked at another film the other day, which I was loved at the time, and I hadn't seen it for years, some, called Someone to Watch Over Me. Mm-hmm. Yep. And it's really good. And uh, Tom Berenger, Mimi Rogers. Um, it's a good film. Um, another thing, I think, uh, way back when The Duelist runs every night globally somewhere, that film cost $800,000 all in. <laughs> and Crazy. in those days, the, in America, Paramount didn't know what to do with it, so they made seven prints. So I said to Putnam, the guy, my partner, who was my producer then, I said, is this normal? He said, no. He said, they don't like it. <laughs> <laughs> so there seven prints in the U.S. That's it. And it won a prize at Cannes. But, you know, in those days, to be let them off the hook, it was all about m- big mainstream cinema. They didn't know how to release something. I mean, the, the real talent of Harvey Weinstein, his brother, was the low-budget, the, low budget, the uh, what they would call the art film. They knew how to release them. Um, we're in an age now where uh, masters, such as yourself, and I will call you that, are able to get their streaming films into theaters. Yeah. Uh, it, Martin Scorsese was able to do it with Killers of the Flower Moon, David Fincher with The Killer. Is it as simple as you just saying, I, no. I want this? No, no, no. Um, I think uh, I think there was a, pl- a business plan with the platforms and whoever they are, and, and there are several, and they were growing in their in their plan to I think eliminate theater completely. Okay, they didn't want it because why? It's com- co- competitive, and also they use up that material already seen before it goes to platform. Mm-hmm. I think people still rewatch things as well. So the, the business plan. Thank God was uh, questioned when I believe I may have this wrong. I may have this wrong, but I heard Tom Cruise had, had learned that the plan was to go stream, minimal screen, then stream. And I heard he said, "Absolutely not. Okay. Count me out if you're going to do that." And they went screen. And it hit a billion dollars in the first month. So that was like, duh, right? <laughs> then, then the same thing with Jim Avatar. It, now it's two point something billion. Now uh, Barbie is two point something billion. So I think the screens are here to stay for the right movies. But then go the low budget movies. There's a, there's a very good company called <clears throat> A23, A4. A24. A24. Yeah. A24. They had a small movie about a fishing boat and a guy who was de- de- deaf and dumb. Yes. Is that the right expression? What do you uh, say? Yes, yeah. He, he was afflicted. He couldn't speak. And that did very well on in its own level on cinema. I mean, it cost nothing, but it made money. So the justification of putting cinema first and then go, go street. And so they realized you can't match that kind of dollar streaming. You can't do it. So then... And, and we were on this, in this perilous edge of going minimal screen screenings about eight, 10 months ago. That's why I finished this film almost about an hour, a year now. Um, it was going to have the other plan. Suddenly they realized it's the wrong plan. And then they had studios bid for it and Sony won. Gotcha. 
You know, we talk a lot about film history on our show, and I think one of the greatest movies that never got made was was Stanley Kubrick's version right. of Napoleon. And I know that you have a history with Kubrick, I think, you know, with Alien and The Shining and things yeah. like that. And I was just curious if, if at all you ever thought or met with him and talked to him at all about this project. I mean, I know he passed years ago, but I was just wondering what your connection was to him, and do you envision what his view vision of this would have been? No, he came to me and said, um, I was in the office, Alien being out. A month. Somebody said, this guy standing on the phone, I said, Stanley, who said Kubrick? He said, fuck off. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I go, who's this? And he said, Stanley Kubrick. I went, oh, okay. He said, and he went straight in. How did he get that thing to come out of his chest? I said, wow, okay. I said, nothing about art, mechanics. How did he get that thing to come out of his chest? Because we didn't have digital effects in those days. So I started to describe, cut a hole in the table, make a fiberglass chest, stretch a T-shirt over it, razor blade it, hand device below it. He said, I got it, I got it. That was it. Then 18 months later, I was having a very bad time on Blade Runner, and we were previewing. The previews were disaster. Things like, why is it always raining? Why is it always dark? And, oh, the ending is depressing. So all in all, it was a disaster. And so the studio, I was being pushed into, we've got to have a happy, don't Americans like a happy ending? Do you like happy? Your ending of Blade Runner is the perfect ending. Oh, yeah. yeah. They want a happy ending. So I say, what does that mean? He said, well, you know, go to the mountains somewhere. You run away forever. I said, well, why do you do that? And if the, if the mountains exist, why do you live in this goddamn awful city? Anyway, I'll do it. <clears throat> called up Stanley said, listen, Shining, I know you're in the helicopter for about six weeks, right? He said, no, I would never go in a helicopter. He said, but yeah, I was six weeks, chopper. I said, can I borrow some of the footage from The Shining for the preview? Cut long story, he said, he said mm, okay. He gave me, it's 70, next day I had 17 hours of, of footage from The Shining. Cutting in, the, it, it made the preview much better I then had to go back to Sunday and say, can I buy it? So the Shining footage is in the first release of, the, of Blade Runner from The Shining. Wow. wow. Unbelievable. Do you know what his Napoleon would have been at all? Like, do you no, I, the, the, after, <clears throat> when he passed, uh, oh, about five years later, somebody sent me the, said, do you want to read this? And I read it, but it was birth to death. Oh. Okay. Oh, interesting. the whole nine yards. Yeah. Interesting. Oh, wow. For the record, your Blade Runner is fucking perfect. Yeah, and and I don't, I don't know what, I know what notes they gave to you of the initial screening, but like, yeah, but you know, when you're exhausted having made it, and you get on your knees, you know, I'm on my knees by now. And they say I don't like the movie. <laughs> <laughs> well, time won, and you won in the end. Well, yes. no, I, I, no, I think it was special. It is. It is special. Yeah. Um, I, I know to put a timestamp on this interview, you're in the middle of filming uh, Gladiator right mm -hmm. now, um, and that's a movie that went through several different versions of what it was going to be. And to me, one of the most fascinating that it didn't end up being was following Maximus into the afterlife. And I'm just mm -hmm. sort of curious if you were ever involved with it at that point and, and how much of the, the Maximus into the afterlife that, that fascinated you, what, what that story would have been. Nick Cave wrote the script. <clears throat> but I had the idea. I knew how to bring him back through a portal back to the, the real world. I'm not going to tell you what it isn't because somebody will steal it. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that script, no, script is out there somewhere. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I have a, I talked to Nick every other day for about a month and, as he was writing it. And so I said, we can bring him back this way. 
And what I want to do is start the film in sticks on the edge of the ocean. And you see him, this warrior wandering in armor there, and it's Maximus wandering, looking for where he's going to go next. Wow. That's cool. That's amazing. Oh. Now, that's same one. Oh, I, I want to jump off that because we, it's, we have a rare opportunity. The last time you were on our show, you were in the middle of getting Napoleon ready to go. Uh, you were promoting Last Duel in House of Gucci, and you were, you were, I think you were at your home, and you're like, yeah, I'm working on this movie Napoleon right now with Joaquin Phoenix. And to sit here right now, that as you mentioned, you're getting Gladiator. I know you shot portion of it before the... 90 minutes. Right, and you got the edit down to 90, and then you're going to go finish the film. Can you give us some insight into how that works? So you shot what you shot, you edit down to 90, and then are you going to show the cast the 90 to get them back in the vibe? How does no, it work? I, I do that. I'm, I'm not going to show anybody anything, no. So, I mean, no, because there was such a rare, unusual situation with a gap, um, that never happens, because normally a director never shows his cut as... This is right until he's ready. So you you shoot the film, director does his thing, he's editing. I edit during the film. Score says he doesn't edit till he's finished. I'm cutting as I go, because I like to see where I am. And uh, so right now I've got 90 minutes, but because it's cut together, I'll probably show my lead actor. Paul? Yeah. And Pedro, I'll probably show them, see what they've got. And Connie. Denzel can wait. <laughs> <laughs> well, we are out of time, sir. We thank you so much for coming back onto the show and joining us. We're all huge fans of this movie, and we can't wait to yeah. tell people awesome. to go see it. And we are back, which uh, feels extra special because that was just Sir Ridley Scott returning. To say that happened once is crazy. The fact that it happened again, um, and it's becoming a regular thing perhaps, um, is pretty astounding. Jake, I was going to ask, do you prefer this one over the first one? But seeing as you didn't really get any questions into the first one, I assume you kind of enjoyed this one more. But yeah, did, I did. Well, not, you not, just, not just because he actually answered my questions this time around, sure. but to hear him. I mean, some of the stories he told, look, we, we love all day talking about Napoleon. But when you get someone like Ridley Scott, when you get any kind of a legendary director, whether it be Ridley Scott or Martin Scorsese or, or, or Steven Spielberg, you're more than happy to talk about the film at hand, the film that you're there to talk about. But also, you kind of secretly hope that, you know, they play the greatest hits too, you know? You don't, you don't mind Paul McCartney, you know, playing his new single he has out, but there's a part of you that really hopes he plays Freebird. Blackbird, or, no, Blackbird. Sorry. Wait, I mean, he plays, hey, if he plays, <laughs> if he plays Freebird, interesting. Hearing, not not just hearing him tell stories about Alien, not just hearing him tell stories about Blade Runner, but hearing him talk about the influence or his connection to Stanley Kubrick on those. Hearing him tell the story about Stanley Kubrick, you know, calling him up and asking about the chestburster scene. Hearing about the fact that there is footage of The Shining buried inside Blade Runner uh, because of Stanley Kubrick. It's, it's, so cool. To me, those are the sort of moments where you just go, this is why we do what we do. Like it's this, To be able to hear those sort of stories where if you were to read them online, your mind would be blown. And you'd go, God, that's really cool. And you'd send that link to your friends. And you'd go, oh my God, listen to this. But to have the man himself sitting in front of you telling you this story about the time Stanley Kubrick called him to ask questions about Alien. Like, what more do you possibly want out of a Ridley Scott interview? Yeah, yeah. And he's such a great... He Like, I could, I could see his, his attitude. I think I talked about it last time he was on. 
where you're like, he's so straightforward and he's not really concerned about sounding super polite. He's just mm-hmm. like, I, I know this to be true and I am, I don't, I'm not really going to sugarcoat that. Yeah. Um, and all, it's all such more a f- reason to like, I'm not, I'm not trying to come out and be like, Oh, he absolutely loved us. We got very nice compliments from, from his sure. team after the interview. But I will say that like, he'll tell you when he doesn't like exactly. You. Yeah. So whenever he doesn't, there is a part of you that just goes, okay, maybe we did. So like he didn't, he didn't yeah. tell us to go fuck ourselves. So like maybe we must've done something right. And it's funny. We talk about, uh, we meaning just like people in, in the industry, people who are paying attention to, to film talk about, you know, how, how old he is now and he's directing and directing at the scale and such and how like mm-hmm. astounding that is incredible that is but let alone you know mentioning a junket like he's been doing i don't know i guess when junkets maybe started more in the 80s but alien coming out in 79 yeah. he's been doing some sort of press talking about movies since 1979 yeah, exactly <laughs> like he he has we use this expression a lot for for the legends but he has forgotten more about filmmaking yeah. than any of us will ever know Incredible. And you're right. Like it's at this point, he's 86 years old. It's hard to ask him a question that, in right. some form or fashion, uh, he hasn't already been asked. And look, I'm gonna, I'm, I'm not telling you that every single story we got in this interview, it was the first time he ever told it. Right. Impossible. Not going to be the case. But you know what? It was the first time. It was the first time he said it to us. And that's, to he, me, that's what matters. It's the first time he said it to us. But I will say, to put a cap on all of that, of just how special it is. You're correct that uh, a filmmaker like that, someone who's been around for so long, has answered so many questions. Mm. We always talk about the goal being like asking, getting the, ooh, that's a great question. Or, ooh, mm. like, oh, I've never been asked that is like the holy grail. For someone like, like that, that's kind of impossible. But to, to ask questions that get them engaged and to get the conversation going and to turn it into a conversation, I think that's what we always strive for on the show. Yeah. Um, and that's here's, here's what I'm going to tell you. Uh, so I, I now have the Sean curse. Uh, well, there's there's several. Is, what is it? Yeah, there's so many. There's so many. Uh, <laughs> so uh, and, and this isn't. This is such a champagne problem, and it's not. Re- it's not meant to sound like I'm not appreciative of the opportunities that are given. But like when you when you get these, sometimes when you get to interview a legend, like I said, you know, you want them to talk about the greatest hits, and there's a part of you that just goes, please, when I ask this question, please don't bring up this one movie that not that many people care about, you know, and and most recently. Before I sat down with Scorsese, Sean was like, you know, he's going to bring up silence, right? He's just going to talk about silence the whole time. And so I asked Scorsese a question about um, the characters whose soul he's most worried about. And he answered the character. Question. Thank you. He answered the character from silence. And in the back of my mind, I thought, son of a bitch, Sean. Like, yeah. he just had to. And so I, the other day, I interviewed uh, Jodie Foster. Uh, <laughs> what and, did you not want her to bring up? And Sean was like, you know, she's going to talk about Nell, right? Nell, okay. <laughs> and so I asked her uh, of all the characters, because she's in this film called Nyad, which is all about, you know, a swimmer who has to endure things that are not just physical, but mental as well. So I asked about what is the most mentally grueling role you've ever taken. And you wanted her to say. <laughs> and she said, I was hoping she'd be like something like Silence of the Lambs. Yeah, I was going to say. Yeah. And she was like, I was in this movie called Nell. And I was like, God damn it, Sean. <laughs> so that's my point of saying that like, and, and for both of those answers, I got a, oh, that's a great question. But I would trade getting, oh, that's a great question for just hearing Ridley Scott t- tell <laughs> a Blade Runner or Alien story that he's told for the thousandth time. So, sure, like, yeah. it's, you know, it's a, you know, it's a, you, know, you can't have your cake and eat it too. But, you know, we're, we're, you know it, was, it was cool hearing him tell those stories. Well, again, an immense thank you to Sir Ridley himself, to the team at Sony, uh, to everybody who's working the junket which was in yes. paris france yes. which is amazing which yes. we talked a little enti- bit about. shout out to the entire the entire sony team there who uh yeah you know dealt with a lot had a lot of stuff going on 
and again, bittersweet for the regulars, bittersweet that that Kevin and Sean are not here. But I'll say that we will we will try to find time. I think, you know, as we get towards the end of the year, we're limping our way there um, to the end of the year. Uh, we've got some fun stuff coming up, but we usually have time for some some more breathy, um, chill episodes. And I think that that's a great time for us to look back at this year and take the opportunity with them to talk about, you know, I'm trying to think back. I have a, my brain's a mush right now with so much going on. Nolan, um, we'll have to talk about Nolan. I mean, there's um, so much this year, yeah. but we'll, we'll get to it. And this is going to be up you know there. What? This is going to be up there. We got, so. uh, we got a ways to go. And uh, we, there's still a lot. Who, who, who's to say that other cool stories won't develop? Yeah, this is true. This is true. Well, that's before a, that's our really quick way of Gabe and I trying to go. Don't say it. Just don't, don't say it. Don't say it. Just don't uh, say it. Before we sign off, though, I do want uh, the folks at home to hear your review of Napoleon. I have not seen it yet. Sure. Uh, we ha- we did have a screening, but it was while I was traveling for for the shoot that we had. Um, but you have seen it. Uh, the movie yes. the movie comes out the day that this is dropping. So if you're yeah. this is Thanksgiving week in America, so movies tend to come out on Wednesday rather than Friday in order to hit the sort of you know it, it's that people call it a tradition but i feel like i don't know anyone that goes to see movies on thanksgiving but i know it's like oh i know every yeah i know it's yeah. people that do okay i know it's a tradition but I, I i don't know anyone that does it necessarily but for me the the thanksgiving holiday is like a full day affair like we're like grazing food hanging out drinking playing games and it's like a whole it's a whole day so there's no real time for for going to the movies but um but you have seen napoleon i have the folks, yes. the folks at home are likely going to see napoleon very soon um we'll stay spoiler free although i guess you know it's historical but but let us know what you thought of walking phoenix uh, as napoleon in napoleon honestly i really love this film here's sort of my hang-up on it um I, I i do think it's some of the most impressive incredible uh epic tangible action sequences i have seen put on the big screen in years like there's definitely moments where you just go Jesus, this is Ridley Scott. This is some of the best Ridley Scott wartime action I've ever seen. I mean, there are moments that are just so visceral that like when a cannon hits somebody, I I think it's the best uh, cinematic representation of what happens to a person when a cannon hits them. Because so often we see, you know, we see cannons being shot and we see cannons landing and it usually results in like an explosion in the ground. And we forget oftentimes that like there are a lot of moments where, you know, they were aiming for people. You know, and what what does that look like when those cannons hit people or a horse or whatever? You know, it's brutal and it's visceral. And those action sequences are incredible. Uh, the stuff in between, I think, is weaker. Uh, the more, uh, you know, human interaction, the more human drama. And I, I don't know what the answer is to fix it because I can't tell. The movie runs 240 and I can't tell if the movie needs to be an hour shorter or an hour longer. The- like there were... There is a longer. There cut. is a four-hour cut, four and if you're hour, okay. yeah, if you're familiar with Ridley Scott, he is, whether it be famously or infamously, um, a a director whose better version tends to be the director's cut that's coming later. If you've never seen the director's cut of Kingdom of Heaven, yeah, to, it's a stone cold masterpiece. To step aside, I, I maybe this is I you know maybe this is a thing that's that's been well theorized. I don't mean to uh, say that I'm the first one to think this. I do find that interesting. I'm taking a step aside from your your. Um, review i think that's because he's first and foremost and he talks about this a commercial director Mm -hmm. like he talks about like himself as a filmmaker and why he's so good why why him and his brother were so good at the start was sure yeah my first movie is alien but i came in with this much commercial experience and i knew how to i knew how to shoot quickly and i knew what i needed and i i always got the sense that he with his director's cuts 
he was like, yeah, of course you need something shorter. You're trying to sell a ticket in a theater. Like he always had like the, you know, the marketing side of it and was like, I will make my art. It'll, sure. it'll exist forever. And I felt like that's why we get such strong director's cuts. Cause I, I assume at some point, if not always, he was yeah. very much like, okay, yeah, let's make, let's work together to make what we think works in this format, whether you agree with that or not. Yeah. Uh, but it just seems to be, he's just as, that's his motto to, or that's his, I, that's his, his method is like, here's yeah. this version, but you know, you're going to get something. Yeah. Really I, Cause I, I also think he stopped carrying how well his movies do at the box office. Yeah. Oh, and I don't really think he cares much for reviews anymore. Um, at this point, I think he just says, listen, I'm going to make the movie I want to make. They'll release whatever version they release in theaters, right. but my true version will exist. However long it takes for you to get it. Um, I, I, it wouldn't surprise me if he said that the version of Napoleon that's hitting theaters is not his version. Like, I mean, like by definition of a director's cut, which he endorses yeah. and has said that is the better version. Uh, and we don't have a release date on that. It is going to come to Apple. So th- here's what I'll say is that, look, I don't have a background in, in European history. I took, I think I took a European history class in high school. Um, but there were multiple moments where I was sort of going, wait, okay, hold on who are they fighting and, and, and why are they fighting this country? Like, okay, they're fighting the British. What are you fighting the British for? There were moments where I kind of wanted you to go, okay, wait, hold on, slow down. I need you to sort of explain, to the, explain this to me like I'm five. Like, wait, I, like, wait I, need, I need an explanation of, of why you're fighting these people. And then on the flip side, that there were some moments where I was like, okay, I get it. I got it. All right, let's, mm. let's, let's move on. Let's go. Let's, let's, let's speed this part along. Um, it's, it's still production value. Everything about it is such, it's so high quality. And especially, and maybe this is, and I'm not, I'm really not trying to, to be like the Marvel knock on Marvel guy right now. And I feel like I there have a lot been of these them. Past, so you're not yeah. the guy. Yeah. But, but like <laughs> when, like it's, it's almost like, uh, having a glass of water after drinking nothing but soda for, for a week. And what I mean by that is just like you, when you see nothing but like just these almost 99% CGI action sequences, it's not to say that they can't look great. Like they can look, I mean, we've sure. seen what Peter Jackson can do with a CGI action sequence. It can look fantastic. But when you just get to the point where like that's all you're getting anymore, and then all of a sudden you see an action sequence that is real people, real locations, real animals, r- what looks to be real pain being inflicted, you just go, oh. Oh, okay, like what I think what people started with, were taking for granted for a long time uh, now is just such a, a refreshing glass of water in the in, in the desert uh, that it just like even though maybe the rest of the movie isn't as great, you have some truly truly remarkable action sequences that are helping stitch together a lesser tiered. Uh, dramatic picture. Uh, Joaquin Phoenix is fantastic. I think he makes some really interesting choices in that he chooses to play him based on, and it seems to be historically accurate based on what we're hearing about this guy uh, in all the museum tours that we took. Uh, a child. He was he was a grown child and, and would have these very these sort of petulant child moments. Um, and I, th- I I didn't expect that, and uh, I, I thought it was really great. And Vanessa Kirby is as she always is fantastic. I think I would have loved. There are a lot of aspects of Josephine, the character who Vanessa Kirby plays, uh, that I would have liked to have seen fleshed out. And it wouldn't surprise me if those are some of the aspects that um, are added to the four-hour cut. I would imagine the four-hour cut isn't necessarily going to be more action because I can't imagine that they would film big, massive action sequences exactly and then cut them out. I would imagine there's probably, probably the things I'm asking for 
uh, are the things that are in the four hour cut. Uh, mm-hmm. A little bit more of an, uh, of an ex, uh, a nuanced explanation as to who was fighting who and why. And, yeah. um, and, and and I guarantee you uh, a lot more with Josephine because because I did a, um, a brief quick Cliff Notes Wikipedia search on sort of who the two of them were and what their relationship was. Um, and there was so much stuff that that was sort of just touched on that, you know, it's it's. So would you ultimately I, a couple questions for you? Would you ultimately recommend viewers at home? Oh or God, haven't, yeah. Haven't I, I, well, no, I, sorry, I, I have to watch it, but to no. to maybe do like a primer catch up on the Napoleon story or some of that history, if you, if you feel like that would help, I think so. I get I into think the story because so. I mean, look, I, I I sort of wish that I had because there's a yeah. part of me that going in like, well, I don't really want it spoiled for me, but it's like, sure, sure, yeah. Again, like you, like we sort of said at the beginning, it is history, and right. I think. I, even if you don't, I mean, I'm not saying you have to read all the way to his death to find out how he died or, you know, but like at least give yourself a base in terms of like, okay, the by the time he and... named himself emperor or whatever the case may be, like, um, right. what, who, what, why, what, and who were they fighting and why were they fighting the British and why were they, you know, um, you know, you, why, honestly, why was, uh, you know, Marie Antoinette beheaded and, and there were, there were so many aspects of it that like, it kind of just throws you into the middle of events that are already happening. Like, honestly, the, the where this movie starts is where a lot of other films have ended. Um, so it's kind of assuming, like, it, it, it doesn't really play catch-up. There's a quick title card at the beginning, but you're you're in the thick of it, and you better follow it uh, if you want to sort of kind of at least have any kind of an intellectual investment in what's going on. Does this, you know, this is interesting because it kind of has a couple connections to Gladiator in that Joaquin Phoenix is returning uh, sure. with Ridley since Gladiator, sure. right? This is the first time. Yeah. Um, and his next movie is Gladiator 2. Gladiator 2, yeah, uh, which he, he touched on and gave us a really interesting insight uh, into uh, what Gladiator 2 was going to be before the script that was um, what ended up what they're shooting right now. Does, does the action in this have you excited to go, okay, he went from this to that of knowing yeah. what Gladiator is going to look like in 2024? I mean, if anything... Look, whether you, however it is you feel about like the story and, and the more sort of slower dramatic aspects of Napoleon, I don't see anyone walking out of Napoleon and going, oh, he, he lost it. He's he doesn't know how it. to shoot yeah. action. Yeah, he's still, the, the man still got action. And, you know, whenever uh, we were in Rome earlier this year and uh, Kevin and I took a tour of the Colosseum and they just told, I mean, if you know anything about the Colosseum and, and, and that period of time, you know, there, there are so many aspects of what they did inside those walls um, that they didn't even touch on in the first Gladiator. And I'm starting to get the impression that he's going to touch on a lot of those things in Gladiator 2. Uh, he, he revealed recently that like there's going to be like this you know, attack of baboons because they used all different kinds of animals in the Colosseum. I think they, t- they used a tiger briefly in Gladiator. Mm-hmm. But there are going to be so many different aspects. And so knowing that he still got it, and I think he's going to dip his toe into some of the, the crazier aspects of the Coliseum for Gladiator 2. Um, also, you know, Gladiator 2 featuring uh, a, the return of, of Denzel Washington, who he hasn't yeah. worked with since American Gangster. Um, wow. It's, uh, yeah, it was, it was I, I have a feeling it's going to be something special. Well, folks, uh, it sounds like you need to see Napoleon. Uh, I, I, I really would. I, I hope that the review didn't sound as harsh as, as I, I feel like yeah. I, I made it out to be because it's if you were to say is it worth paying to go to the theaters unquestionably absolutely mm-hmm. like if, if you're telling yourself oh I'm just going to wait till uh, you know you see, I'm going to wait till I see it at home you're missing out you really are yeah yeah this is the scale of this deserves yeah. deserves the big screen so go check out Napoleon again thank you to Ridley Scott for joining us and as I said as we said at the top of the show 
that is not the last that you're going to see of us this week, uh, because on Friday we are dropping our interview from the same junket with Joaquin Phoenix returning uh, since his interview for the Joker. Go check that out if you yeah. um, if you want to hear how that went. One of our all-time great interviews. Um, and he comes in. I'll say this. I, I don't know if I said this on air. I think I said this before we were recording. But this one felt like, you know, we talk about in the original interview with him where it felt like it took 10 or 15 minutes for him to like really get comfortable and be like, oh, okay, this is this kind of interview. And then he was yeah. like super fun and jokey and, and I hate to use the word normal, but like, you know, just yeah. very, not sure. as, not as like, you know, we didn't need to be as nervous as, as uh, the atmosphere made us feel. And with this one, it felt like he sat down and he was already oh, ready to so play. The, the moment we walked in, because he was standing there by the door when we walked in the room and, and we'll tell the story when we get there, but it's yes. a good, it's a good, yeah, you're, you're hundred percent right. The interview starts out at the level where Joker left off. It, it, it honestly, it's the perfect metaphor for a sequel. Like there where, where part one leaves off, part two picks up right there. Now we got to get him for, uh, what's the, what's Joker 2 called? Fully ado? What's the... I, I, I wouldn't... Look, I, I've butchered it's enough Fr- French. French as well. Oh, oh, <laughs> I was yeah, say. I've butchered <laughs> enough French this past week that uh, I really don't need to do anymore. All right. Well, folks, thank you uh, for tuning in. Uh, you can find me at Gabe Kovach, Jake at Jake's Takes, uh, at Kevin McCarthy TV, at sean underscore o'connell and the show is at real blend um but until next time which is gonna be friday come on back tell your friends hit subscribe if you haven't uh what are we in now uh well i'm just gonna say that uh thank you for paying your artist well done yeah thanks for paying your artist yeah Yeah, well done we appreciate you the check's cleared (laughs) everybody in your crew identifies as either big mac burger mcnuggets or mccrispy sandwich but you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.